All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time that uh, your church comes together, Lord. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us, guide us into what you want at this time. Speak to us, Lord. Open our eyes, our minds to know your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first I want to say thank you. Thank you for all of you guys because you guys support us through encouragement, through prayers, through support. And I, I want to first just echo Paul's words here. I put the verse up here because it's easier and we don't have too much time. I want to echo Philippians 1, 3 through 5. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I thank you guys because you guys have gone to Kenya. You have preached the gospel through the partnership. You know, as a ministry, uh, we support kids with school fees. Uh, we have a medical clinic and many other things, but we do all of that for the gospel. We want people to understand the gospel. D.L. Moody, the uh, evangelist, he used to say, uh, you can take a young boy that is stealing nuts and bolts on the railroad and in an attempt to change him, you put him in school all the way through university. When he gets done with university, he'll steal the whole railroad. Now, it's true, education, just knowledge, isn't going to change anybody. It's the gospel that changes people, and it's the gospel that we preach. And I thank you for the partnership, as it says there, for the gospel. Well, if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you from the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to look from verse 19. But by way of background... In chapter 8, the Apostle Paul dealt with the subject of doubtful things or questionable practices. And in the case of the church at Corinth, in the city of Corinth, uh, the issue was meat offered to idols. As a Christian, should you eat meat that was offered to idols? This, in fact, is, is somewhat of a debate. Even in Kenya, we work amongst Muslim people. And Muslims, or sorry, Christians often wonder if they should eat halal meats. Maybe you've seen a little sticker on some food products that says halal. Uh, basically, it's approved for a Muslim to eat, which means they follow their custom, for example, say with meats, and how they slaughter that meat. It has to be slaughtered by a Muslim, and they have to do it in a certain way. They say certain things. Uh, they are blessing it before Allah. So then the Christian asks, should we eat that meat? It's somehow similar uh, in the church of Corinth. They're offering food to idols, and the church was wondering, should they eat that meat? Well, Paul concludes in chapter 8 that a Christian had the liberty to eat the meat, but it became a sin if eating the meat caused a brother who was weak in conscience to sin. They shouldn't eat it. They should care for the brother in that case. He also pointed out that the mature brother should set aside uh, the liberty in love to help the weak brother not stumble and enable him to grow up and understand the grace of God, become mature in Christ. So the stronger brother is not supposed to insist upon his rights, or rather give up that which is all right to practice in order for the body to remain pure and the gospel to remain pure. Now that shouldn't be a surprise. That's kind of the foundation of the gospel, right? We die to ourselves. we humble ourselves. we give up our rights. Now in chapter 9, Paul gives an example 
of himself. Now, Paul, in many ways, uh, gave up his rights. In 2 Corinthians, uh, he talks about the whole list of things that he gave up, how he suffered for the cause of Christ. We're told he went without food, uh, food. Uh, he was beaten several times. He was shipwrecked. He lost sleep at night. Many different things he gave up for Christ. Well, in chapter 9 here, right before we read in chapter uh, verse 19, he gives the example of him uh, having the right to receive financial income for the sake of the gospel, right? Pastors like Pastor Ben, we support them, and that's uh, biblical. We should support them financially. Well, Paul gave up that right, that liberty, in order to keep the gospel pure. Now, there's many reasons for that. In fact, in Thessalonians, it says that he worked day and he worked night. Now, it doesn't mean he didn't sleep, but he worked when it was daylight, and sometime at night, he was also working. He was a busy man. Now, he wasn't working to obviously pay his mortgage or anything like that. It was for the gospel. He wanted the gospel to go forth, and he didn't want anything to get in the way of people hearing and understanding the gospel. So I want us to read in verse 19. Let us read from verse 19. Says, Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. And of course, the blessings of the gospel is ultimately salvation and eternal relationship with our gods. Now, I, I want to be clear. I hope I don't bring confusion here. But Paul is not saying the end justifies the means, right? Like, do whatever you want as long as they confess Christ, right? As long as they receive this message. Paul's not talking about that. He's saying in these verses that he's speaking about moral indifferences, right? You know, in every culture, there's amoral things, okay? They're not necessarily uh, right or wrong. They're just different, okay? I think Ben talked about this when we addressed uh, sin and the issue. Make sure we're actually addressing the real thing, the real things that matter. Uh, for example, uh, s some people wear socks with sandals. I don't know why that is. <laughs> I forgive you. I don't think it's right. <laughs> but some people do. You know, I like to eat food with my hands, but that drives my dad crazy. I didn't always do that. Of course, little children like to do that. But, you know, going to, to Africa, I lived with an Indian for one year. And he said, Aaron, if I'm going to be cooking the food, you have to eat with your hands. So I had no other option. I got used to eating with my hands. Now I kind of disgust my dad, right? How can you eat with your hands? So there's many things in cultures that are, you know, amoral. They're of indifferences in the culture. And Paul is saying that he accommodated himself to the customs and the habits and the traditions of the people he went to so that they would actually hear the gospel message. So he got rid of everything that stood in the way of them understanding the gospel message. Uh, 
David Guzik, maybe you know him, he's a Calvary Chapel pastor, he says this, Paul was willing to offend people over the gospel. Hopefully we all say amen to that, but he wanted to offend them only over the gospel. That second part's a little harder, right? It was only over the gospel. Of course, the gospel is offensive, but these other things, how we dress, how we talk, how we walk, we don't want that to stumble people. Now, why am I talking about this? Because it's a personal conviction over the last few years of my wife and I. We had this conviction. For us, we've uh, lived and worked in Kenya for 10 years. We thank God, we reached the decades. Uh, and specifically, we worked along the coast of Kenya. About 50% of the people are Muslim, 50% of the people are Christians. So there is a strong church. You'll find many church buildings, right? And there's also a strong Islamic presence. You'll find many mosques that are there. And for about eight of those years, my wife and I helped lead a ministry that sought to reach Muslims and help others reach Muslims. This is our heart. This is our conviction from the Lord. We want to reach Muslims and help other people reach Muslims in their neighborhood. So we would go around to churches, and by his grace, uh, we are able to train over 200 churches, uh, thousands of people, and how to reach out to Muslims. But after several years of this, we grew uh, frustrated because very few churches were willing to disciple Muslims. You know, discipling Muslims, helping them grow in the faith, receiving them in the body of Christ, right? Where they can nurture and grow in a way that is helpful to them. We had one lady that was coming to our fellowship and she told us that she would wear the hijab. You know, the hijab is the Islamic head covering that they're supposed to wear. And she would go to a church, and it happened more than once. The ushers would say, no, you have to take off the hijab for you to come into this church. Only Christians are allowed in the church, right? And you need to take off the hijab. Another lady said, based on her ethnicity, which her tribe is virtually all Islamic, they said, no, we don't believe that you could be a Christian. You must be a spy. You're not allowed here. We continued to, to hear these stories. And that's why we went around to churches and said, no, you, you got to make the gospel the central thing, not cultural things. But we always ran into people that were adamant. No, we need to do things this way. Well, after telling people and teaching people, uh, the Lord convicted us. And he said... Before you preach to somebody else, preach to yourself. <laughs> so here we were. We were in a church building, you know, four walls, and it was nice. Uh, obviously, had a really cool band and uh, kids program and all these things. But the Lord was convicting. What about, what about you, Aaron? What, about, what are you doing, right? How are you humbling yourself? So after about two years of disobedience, <laughs> my wife and I said, no, we have to have a small church, right? We know from our experience these walls that we're making and we're saying they're the church, they're keeping people from experiencing the love of God. They're keeping people from finding Christ. So he said, we're gonna start in our home. And that's what we did. Now, I should explain, when we started in our home, it was three months before we came here last time. So this is about three, and, three years and three months from roughly this time. So you can imagine, wait, we're starting three months before we're leaving for four months, right? Why would we be doing this? But we had to. We, we said we were like Jonah, you know, we were kind of running from the obvious, so we just started, just our family. For the first couple of weeks, it was just Dama and the kids, and, and of course, they liked my messages. <laughs> easy, easy uh, target. Uh, 
But we started, we had to. You know, uh, John Wimber, who came out of the Calvary Chapel movement, he, he used to teach and say that faith is spelled R-I-S-K, risk, because there is definitely an element of risk every time we step out and we trust God. So we started praying, and about four weeks later, an elderly woman found out that we were meeting, and she started coming. And we were thankful, but again, we're leaving in two months. <laughs> what is this elderly lady going to do, right? Who's going to take over? Well, about two months before, the elderly lady invited this other man, and he started coming. His name was, was Churchill. I have a picture of Churchill. And Churchill's story was that he was going to a church, but he also was listening on the radio to some Bible teachers. And maybe you've heard of these Bible teachers. One's called Chuck Smith, and the other one's John Corson. Thankfully, they're on the radio in Kenya. And he's listening to these guys, and he's in church, and he's listening to the pastor. He says, no, what the pastor's saying, what the church is doing is not what's in the word of God. So he grew discontent with the church that he was going and started just going to his home and turning on the radio. Eventually, he, he talked to this elderly lady, and she invited him to the church, and he was happy to be in a place where they'd study the word of God verse by verse. Now, in this picture, uh, these are all his books, <laughs> This is our house, the place that we're living. This guy who owns it put up all these bookshelves and had all this space. And Churchill was like, hey, I have a few books. Can I bring them over and put them on the shelves? <laughs> now, you have to understand, uh, there's a saying in Africa that if you want to keep a secret, put it in a book. Because very few people read books, right? So when Churchill said, I have a few books, I was thinking, you know, maybe a little box full of books. He brought over five sacks of books. <laughs> But I'm thankful God had those shelves for him. It shows something, the kind of guy that he is. So before we left, uh, he continued the teaching. Yeah, and right now he's continuing the teaching. And I teach with him at the three uh, fellowships that we have. In Africa, I shared this yesterday, 95% of pastors in Africa have no formal theological training. We thank God for the explosive growth of Christianity through the continent, however, it's come with consequences because uh, the maturity of believers and the training of the pastors has been limited. Well, for us, Churchill and I, as we teach through Book of the Bible, we realized there's a lack of biblical resources for the local pastors. So as we take notes, we've taught through First and Second Thessalonians last year and also Philippians last year. Uh, we've translated it uh, into Kiswahili to give to the local pastors. Uh, right now, Churchill is teaching through the book of Hebrews. So that's what we're going to keep doing. Um, there's 100 million Kiswahili speakers in East Africa, Tanzania, Kenya, Uganda, and a few other places speak Kiswahili. I only know of one biblical commentary in Kiswahili. That shows you the type of need. And that one biblical commentary, it's printed in the UK, and it costs about $12 for one of the books. So we wanted to create something accessible and affordable. So these, we can print them for about a dollar, and then we can give them to rural, rural pastors. Now, after Churchill came, again, our vision, and what the Lord was convicting us, is that we wanted a place where Muslims could come and grow in the faith, or at least former Muslims that are now in Christ. So uh, when we went back, uh, there was a lady that we knew. I'm going to call her name uh, Shannon, uh, just to protect her identity. Uh, we knew Shannon. Uh, for many years, since we went to Mombasa. And Shannon's story was that she was happily married, she had one small child, 
but she had no peace in her life. She wasn't content in her life. Now, if you're looking at the picture, I should have said she's the third one from the left. The third one from the left. So Shannon um, had no peace, and there was a Christian that she knew, and this Christian gave her a little pocket Gideon's Bible. Have you seen those Bibles? They're around here. There's one right there, yeah, just like that, yeah. Small pocket Gideon's Bible. And she knew she wasn't supposed to be reading the Bible. Virtually all Muslims realize that, know that. So she was hiding it. And when she would go to the bathroom, that's when she would pull out the Gideon's Bible and she would start reading the text. And through time, uh, she would find out who this Jesus was. And she realized that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And her family members found out that she had this Bible. The first time, they threatened her, you stop this, or there's going to be consequences. Well, she kept reading it, and she was found with it again. This time, they beat her, they stabbed her, and they threw her basically on the street without her child to fend for herself. Uh, Thankfully, there were some Christians that helped her at that time, and she started getting established. And by the grace of God, after a few years, the husband actually gave the child back to uh, Shannon. And Shannon has the, uh, the child, and the child, I think, is 16 years old now. And she's doing well. She's a believer in Christ. Now, this picture happened uh, last year. Um, like I said, I knew Shannon for a while, but she was going to a different church. Um, and she came to me one day, and she said, Aaron and Dama, I had a dream. Now, in, in Africa, you know, dreams are very common. Uh, they're a source of, like we see in the Bible, you know, some sort of confirmation and conviction of God's word. And she came and she said, I had a dream. And every time someone says a dream, I'm like, oh no, what are they going to say? <laughs> he said, we had a dream and you were in the dream along with Dama. And she explained the dream that she was walking in this field and the field was full of, of grass. And then up on the hill was a tree. And this tree had a lot of fruits. It was massive and it was producing a lot of fruits. And as she walked closer to the tree, Dama and myself were under the tree, and she said we were reading the word of God. And of course, if you were here on Thursday, at that time I thought of Psalms chapter one, right? Blessed is the man who meditates upon the word of God day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in season. Well, she says, I saw that tree, I saw you under it, and the Lord has convicted me that I should be studying the word of God with you. And of course, we had just started the Bible study. So we're like, amen, you're more than welcome. So she's faithfully been coming. Last year, we had a a couple's uh, gathering, and we invited her. She's still single. uh, Over a decade since, you know, the husband separated. She loved her husband. There was no problem with the husband. But she loved Christ more. And at a time in this meeting, we went around and we just opened it up. To share. And of course, it's awkward when you have more of a couple's meeting and you're single, right? I think we've all been there at one time. But she didn't have a problem sharing. She said, you know, when I came to Christ, I lost my husband. I love my husband, right? I lost my husband. But you know, when I came to Christ, it was as though I gained another husband in Jesus. And I like to think that I'm married to Jesus. You know, that's, of course, what we see in the Bible. We say that all the time, right? We're the bride, he's the groom. But here's someone that's, that's lived it. That will stick with me for a long time. Now, shortly after that, Shamim has a heart for evangelism, and she reached out to another lady uh, we'll call Willow. And Willow uh, 
grew up as a Christian, but very nominal, didn't really have a foundation in the faith. And there was a Muslim man that she started dating, and eventually the Muslim man wanted to marry her. And she agreed, right? He had the finance to support her. She liked him. They got married. Well, she continued, again, similar to Shamin, grew uh, having lack of peace in her heart. And she knew that she had to have something more. She had to have more purpose in life. And Shamim started sharing the peace that she had in Jesus Christ. And she was invited to the fellowship. At that time, uh, she was ready to receive Christ. So actually, the first time she came to the fellowship, she said, hey, I want to you know, pray to receive Jesus Christ. We love those people, right? <laughs> they come to you and they say, yeah, we want to we pray to receive Christ. I would imagine she already did. Her heart was there. So we prayed for her, and soon after she said, you know, I want to be baptized. So this day we obviously baptized her, uh, but her friend Shamim couldn't make it that day, and her other friends that were in that part of town, so we're like, man, is she even going to show up? Because we were at the beach. She didn't know exactly where it was, but she was the first one there at the beach waiting for us. She was so eager to be baptized and make a confession to follow Christ. Well, with her story, as, as many of them, there's a time of persecution. And eventually her husband found out. She didn't know how he found out, but she was at the hospital. She has several health problems. And she went to pay the bill for them to say, oh, you've been taken off the insurance. You're no longer on the insurance. She said, what? You know, she's a very poor lady. She doesn't work. She relies upon her husband to support her. So he called her husband. She said, no, I found out you're a Christian. I'm not supporting you at all. You're on your own. Now, she was the second wife to the husband, so she didn't always see the husband. Uh, so it left her with her adoptive son, Juma. Juma is there in the middle. So not only is she coming, having to come up with rents, but now Juma and his school fees. He's a child with disabilities, not really her, her uh, biological child, adopted, like I said. Uh, but when she was a Muslim, her neighbor... Uh, died, and this was the child, and she took uh, him in. So we thank God as a church, we are able to help Juma go back to school. It's a boarding school, and he stays there. Juma loves Jesus too. He always comes to the beach, and every Sunday, you know, he, he wants to be there with us. At one time, uh, his mom was going to our house where we were meeting for a church, but Juma had taken off because sometimes he just wakes up and he goes. Well, his mom didn't know. She wanted to go to church, so she just left. Well, that evening, after we had fellowship for a few hours, that evening, he showed up. I don't know how he got there. I don't know how he knew to get there, but his feet were, were bleeding, um, and he was in bad shape, but he wanted to go to church. In his mind, he was going to go to church. When we took him to the school this day, he said, you know, they take me to the mosque to pray, because his name's Juma. It's a Muslim name. He goes to the mosque. And of course, we're thinking, well, what can you do? If someone with disabilities, you're going to go talk to the leadership of the school and say, no, he needs to go to the church, not the mosque. We just told Juma, Juma, when you go to the mosque, you pray to Jesus. So be praying for Willow and Juma. Here's two other brothers that have uh, come to our fellowship. Like I said, we have three fellowships. Two meet in homes. The other meets in a bookshop. Okay. The brother on your right is Musa. And Musa's so passionate about the Lord. He feverishly writes notes as I teach or Churchill teaches. And he asks questions. In town, uh, all the people that attend come from Muslim backgrounds. So they're always asking questions. Some of them are kind of different and strange. 
you know, when we first had communion with one of the brothers, they said, you know, what in the world are we doing here? It's like the Jews, are we eating the, you know, Jesus here? Are we eating his flow? What does that mean? They were confused, but they asked questions because they're hungry to learn. Musa, like I said, writes notes, and at the end, when he fills up the notepad, he gives it to me. <laughs> I have two of his notebooks. Maybe I should uh, write them out to make his own commentary. <laughs> I love his passion. The other brother is Samson. Samson also comes from Muslim background. He's also hungry to learn. He joined this Bible school. He's only been born again for just over, well, two years now. Uh, but he wanted to study, so he said, I need to go to school. And God has miraculously provided. His family doesn't support him. Of course, he's the age where he can work. And uh, a few months ago, when we were in the fellowship, uh, he came in and he looked kind of distraught. And I was wondering what's going on with, with Samson. So I asked him, what's wrong, brother? Seems like something's bothering you. And he told me, I had a dream. There's a dream again. <laughs> he said, I had a dream. And it also correlates to what we're studying in Thessalonians. In this dream, I'm convicted that the Lord is saying that I must suffer for Christ. Now, of course, that's in the scripture. And I praise God that he had that conviction. You know, so much of the gospel, so much of the teaching in, in Africa is this health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It's anything but suffering. If you're closer to God, you're gonna be blessed by God, materially blessed. Those that are suffering, they say, are cursed by God, right? You've done something wrong. You need to make yourself right. Well, this brother understands the word of God, right? He understands the gospel the way I wanna understand the gospel. Yes, we've all been called to suffer for Christ. This other brother we'll call Isaac. I mentioned Isaac the last time I was here. Um, Isaac got transferred to Mombasa to finish his university studies. I met him in a restaurant, not this restaurant, but I met him in a restaurant and just got his phone number, just chatting with him, and we started a relationship. And he is somebody I would call a person of peace. You know, in Luke chapter 10, uh, we're told that we're supposed to stay with the people of the person of peace, meaning the person that is receptive of the gospel. They might not receive the gospel, but they're not hostile to the gospel, right? They ask questions. They allow you to open scriptures and engage. Well, Isaac's a person of peace, and I started discipling him what I call to Christ. We always make that distinction, discipling someone in Christ and someone to Christ. To Christ is before they make a public confession that I'm following Christ. You think about the disciples. When the first disciples started following Jesus, were they born again? No, they weren't, right? But they started learning and they were disciples of Jesus. Disciple means a learner. So a person of peace, as you continue to walk with them, they keep learning about Jesus and salvation and God willing, you'll start discipling them in Christ. So five years ago, I met with him. I would say he's one of my closer friends in Kenya. And we've gone, we had gone through the Gospel of John, Philippians, quite a few books. He had stayed with us several times in our home. And last year, uh, because of COVID, uh, he was kind of, I don't want to say laid off, but he, he uh, didn't have any work, so he stayed with us for a few more days. And during that time, he actually made a confession that yes, he was following Jesus Christ as his Lord. So we praise God for him. A few days before I left uh, Kenya, I met with him. And where he lives, we thank God that he got a job. But he got a job where he's from, in northern Kenya, okay, close to the, close to the border. And there, he says he knows no Christians. 
There's no Christian that he knows that. And he stopped going to the mosque to pray, and people start questioning him, right? The, the local imam, he says, visits him at home and kind of rebukes him, right? These are bad works that you're doing. You need to go, Allah sees you. He's keeping a tally of your mistakes. Um, and he's not sure what to do. And I asked him, I knew kind of the type of answer he was gonna give, but I wanted to ask him. I said, what would happen, Isaac, if you came out and said to your family, you know, I'm following Jesus. I'm not going to the mosque anymore. And without saying anything, he just goes like this. He says they would, they would kill me. And he went on to tell a story of another person from his same community that came to Christ, and he openly was preaching the gospel, and that's what happened. He was taken out. I didn't even know he knew of this person, but it makes sense. It's a small community that he was killed. So pre-praying for Isaac, be praying for growth and strength and wisdom to know how to live in a very hostile area. So I thank God for the fellowship. This was at Christmas time, the three fellowships we came together and, and celebrated. Again, we're small you know, groups, like five, five people. Um, we try to, to multiply after five because we want to stay small. Uh, you get big, then insecurity issues, you know, people, you're bringing attention. But then just intimacy of fellowship, you, you don't have the freedom to ask questions, uh, to really engage in the way that is uh, helpful for someone from a Muslim background. Well, in closing here, I wanted us to think back to First uh, Corinthians chapter 9 and ask you guys, uh, what do we need to give up? What liberty do we need to give up? Because we see it with the Apostle Paul, right? He gave up all things so that he would win people to Christ. Again, he's not saying he's, he's compromising the truth of the gospel, not at all, okay? But those things that aren't the gospel, he's willing to give up. So the wrong question is, is not, you know, uh, do I need to give up something? But what, God, do you want me to give up so that I can reach people for the gospel? So that is the question I, I, I want to leave with you guys. I pray that you would think about it through the week. And what's really important is that one, you spend time asking God, okay? Maybe it's, what am I wearing? What am I not wearing? How am I speaking? How am I not speaking? Okay, what am I eating? What am I not eating? The Apostle Paul went as far as uh, his job. He took a different job, right? So he wouldn't compromise the gospel and reach people through uh, his work, whatever it is, I don't know what it is. Um, but the second thing that's very important besides just praying is who are you reaching? Because that's going to be how you determine what liberty you must give up. Now, again, this liberty is your rights, yeah? Like with the Corinthians, they could eat any meat. Paul was saying, yeah, it's fine. Eat whatever meat you want as a Christian. We understand whether it's to idols or not. It's just meat. These are fake gods that they're offering it to. But for the sake of the other person, for the sake of the brother in Christ, not to cause them to stumble, but even for the sake of the listener to hear the gospel, we have to break down those things that are barriers. So ask yourself, who are you reaching? Who do you want to evangelize to? Now, if you don't know, and that, I think that's part of the problem, a lot of times we aren't intentional. We haven't really thought about exactly who are, whose soul we are asking God for. If you don't know, think about your neighborhood, right? Just start in your neighborhood and think about the neighbors that are around you, okay? Not the Christian neighbors, but the unbelievers. 
and ask yourself, what do they think of you as Christians? I would imagine most of them are not offended because of the gospel, okay? Now, if they are offended to the gospel, praise God, it was spoken of, right? We don't have to worry. But most of the people, in my experience, don't even know what the gospel is, right? So how are they going to be offended of the gospel if they don't know what it is, if they can't already articulate it, if it hasn't been articulated to them? And think about, if it's not the gospel, then what are those things that are barriers for them to actually listen to you and receive the gospel? And like I said, humble yourself, follow the way of Christ, come to them, and meet them where they're at. Amen? Amen. Well, let me pray. It will be dismissed. I don't know if there's another song at the end, but let me pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you, for you care about souls more than us. Lord, that you are our example. You humbled ourselves, and we're told to follow your example. You humbled yourself to the point of death, death on a cross. So Lord, no matter what the cost, without compromising the truth of the gospel, Lord, may we... um, humble ourselves, Lord, and whatever liberty it is, reveal it to us, God, that we need to, to get rid of, whether it's the church walls, like for us, for Dama and me, or something else, Lord. We want to be faithful to you and proclaiming the goodness of who you are. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.